0: Hear God's word. Let us, pray. Let us pray the sunrise morning show. And a way to start your day.
1: On this Labor Day, let's begin this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer to Saint Joseph the Worker. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glorious St. Joseph, model of all who pass their life in labor, obtain for me the grace to work in a spirit of penance and atone for my many sins, to work conscientiously, putting the call of duty above my own inclinations, to work with gratitude and joy, considering it an honor to use and develop by my labor the gifts I have received from God, to work with order, peace, moderation, and patience, without ever recoiling before weariness or difficulties. Help me to work, above all, with purity of intention and with detachment from self, having always before my eyes the hour of death and the accounting which I must render of time lost, talents wasted, good omitted, and vain complacency and success, which is so fatal to the work of God. All for Jesus, all for Mary, all after your example, O Patriarch Joseph. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special Labor Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we're heading to the archives today to share with you some of our best interviews from past shows with this national holiday in mind. Hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. It's the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and Mike Aquilina is with us from FathersOfTheChurch.com. He's co-author with fellow Sunrise Morning Show regular, Dr. Jim Papandrea, of Seven Revolutions, How Christianity Changed the World and Can Change It Again. Mike, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me back, Annie.
1: Always love to have you back. And we're talking about labor today, or work Prior to Christianity, how did the non-Christian or pagan world value labor?
2: It belonged to slaves. It was. Uh, it had very negative connotations. Work was something to be avoided, and if you were of the aristocracy, the nobility, it was something you didn't do. You know, that was something that you you bought slaves to do, and so uh, so we we find even in the works of uh, of Plato, of Aristotle, um, uh, derogatory statements about people who work with their hands and do contemptuous labor. You know, this was this was something frowned upon, and uh, in a from, from Greek to Roman culture, and we find it even, you know, in the later pagan philosophers like Plotinus, who, uh, who looked down on the servile work that was done by slaves.
1: Well, Mike, how did Christianity refute those ideas about labor?
2: Well, you know, Christianity uh, uh, arose out of uh, the religion of Israel, Judaism, and, uh, and, and we find the scriptures of this revealed religion, uh, beginning with with uh, the creation of a man and a woman, and the command to work. To go out there and to till the garden and to keep it, and uh, and so work had positive co- connotations from the beginning. And if you look at all the great heroes of the Old Testament, they're not people who just kind of lounged around on a couch all day <laughs> and and had slaves peel them grapes. They were farmers and herdsmen and mothers, and they were seamstresses and they were um, they were sailors like Noah, and uh, and so they were doing. They were doing work with their hands. They were, they were, they were putting in respectable days um, with, uh, with their hands, with their feet, and, uh, and getting things done. This continued in the New Testament. When God became incarnate, he became incarnate as a carpenter, mm-hmm. as a man who worked with his hands as a craftsman. And, uh, and then, you know, when he, when he, when he uh, commissioned, the next generation to go out to the world and tell the good news, we find that the most articulate of all of his followers is a tent maker, St. <laughs> Paul. So there's this this, uh, this kind of blue-collar quality to the first generation of Christians, and and what, what's interesting is that that's one of the, the, the reasons the pagan apologists cited for not becoming a Christian. Wow. Because you know what? You just have to hang around with with slaves and laborers at church.
1: Wow. You know, I was going to ask you, and hoping you can dive a little bit deeper into that, how did the pagan world take to this Christian message of the dignity of work?
2: Well, they laughed at it. Uh, you know, the earliest anti-Christian apologist we know about was a pagan philosopher named Celsus, or Chelsus, depending on the kind of Latin you speak. But, uh, but he wrote, he wrote uh, this, this tract against Christianity, and in it he, he, uh, he, he scoffed at, uh, at the fact that you'll find wool workers in these con- congregations, and washerwomen, and all of these people who do grungy work that, that really... Respectable people uh, just don't do, and uh, and so he he derided Christians for this reason that they they included, yes the wealthy but also the rabble and they included them together and we find that this is the case uh, even in the earliest days of the church because that's the way Saint Paul describes. The, the, the congregation at Corinth, that it included the wealthy and the poor, those who had and those ha- who had not. And they were called to be one communion. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting that Jesus and Mary are singled out for their hard work, and they're scoffed at by Chelsus.
3: Wow.
1: Very interesting. Now, I'm assuming, then, that there was a very different message coming from the post-apostolic age and the Christian fathers of the Church.
2: Absolutely. You know, the the Christians were encouraged to work hard, and they were uh, encouraged to do their work with diligence, because in doing so, they were imitating God himself. There's a great line from Jesus where he says, he says, My father is, is working still and I am working. You know, this is this is something that, that that Jesus is describing himself as a laborer and describing God himself as a laborer. So we're imitating God when we're when we're laboring. We're we're cooperating with God and co creating with God when we're when we do work of our work with our hands. And it's given a certain dignity. You know, the fathers of the church loved uh, that, that sense we have in the Mass uh, where we, we bring to the altar the, uh, the fruit of the earth and work of human hands. Those are the words of the Mass. And the Fathers loved that sense, that we were bringing all the earth to the altar, and there it was being consecrated along with the bread and wine. We were bringing the earth back to God, re-consecrating it, and, and restoring all things in Christ.
1: And I mean, you think about the father of monasticism. I mean, the uh, the Benedictines. Their motto today, even still, is "ora et labora," work and prayer.
2: That's true. Uh, you know, even long before uh, St. Benedict, St. Basil, was telling monks that they should, have a, they should have work to do every day, because they should be producing something that was a benefit to the poor. So he encouraged them to make things with their hands, to make baskets, to make boxes, that sort of thing, things that would be useful for the poor.
1: Now, Mike, did the Christian message of the dignity of work bring hope to those who did labor?
2: How could it not? Otherwise, if, if you were a slave or in any kind of servile capacity, you could only think of yourselves in third-rate terms. Uh, you were not appreciated. You were not loved. You were not respected the way the aristocracy uh, were respected. So I, I, I think that, that Christianity just restored that, that dignity. Uh, to these people and gave them a sense of who they were, uh, maybe not in the eyes of the pagan culture, but in the eyes of God.
1: But did we also see Christianity perhaps changing the way that people treated slaves and other laborers?
2: Well, certainly, because there you have that kind of democracy that exists in a congregation. If you look at the earliest, um, the earliest. Uh, instructions for bishops. Uh, the, the documents like the Didiskelia Apostolorum from the 3rd century, they're, in, they're telling bishops, you may not make distinctions between wealthy people and laborers. You, you, you may not make those distinctions in a congregation. They have to be able to sit together. They have to be able to worship together. And, and, uh, and, and really, the congregation should reflect the fact that God does not make those distinctions.
1: And, Mike, I know you talk about this in a book that you've co-authored with Dr. Jim Papandrea. Tell us more about that book.
2: Well, it's, it's titled Seven Revolutions. It's out from Image Books. And, uh, and it talks about seven ways that the, um, that, that the early Christian church revolutionized the world uh, by, by, by kind of introducing new ideas into the bloodstream of civilization. So, you know, there are ideas like human dignity and about the dignity of human work. Uh, and that's just a couple of examples, obviously. but uh, But Christianity really did give us our current understanding of these things. And, uh, and, and I don't know where we would be without it.
1: Absolutely. And what do you think we can learn from it today?
2: Oh, we should celebrate it. We should celebrate it because this is a gift of the Church, this appreciation of labor, which would have been impossible without the advent of Jesus Christ. We should celebrate the great craftsman, the great carpenter, the great laborer who works beside us and, uh, and, and, and goes to work with us every day. That was the way the earliest fathers imagined him in their piety. Clement of Alexandria, writing in Egypt at the end of the second century, you know, told... People to imagine Jesus as a tamer of wild horses. Other fathers said, "Imagine him as a mariner there with you, doing your work, uh, and and imagine him as a, as a man in the field leaning into the plow beside you." We can do that today, and we can know that God is working beside us, working with us, working through us. Our hands, because we're baptized, have His power, divine power. We have a touch that's that's. That's more powerful than the touch of King Midas. Midas could turn anything to gold. We turn things to glory.
0: Hmm.
1: A beautiful way to end the conversation. The book, again, is Seven Revolutions, How Christianity Changed the World and Can Change It Again. We've been talking to the co-author, Mike Aquilina. And Mike, where can listeners find out more about you or perhaps pick up a copy of this book or one of your many others?
2: Fathersofthechurch.com.
1: Thanks for listening to the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back.
2: Support
4: is from TBN. Weaving its way through the heart of the Holy Land is a well-worn path that once felt the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, and Jesus. Host David Friedman and Mike Pompeo take a sacred journey of hope along Route 60, the Biblical Highway. Experience the land of the Bible as you've never seen it. In theaters September 18th and 19th, Route 60, the Biblical Highway. Information at route60.movie, that's route60.movie. Looking for peace, longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMetopray.com. Order the free digital training and facilitator manual. LordTeachMetopray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray.
5: You listen to The Sunrise Morning Show. Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of The Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H at sacredheartradio.com.
6: Get an insider's look at
5: the latest information from EWTN.
6: Sign up for Wings, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your Wings today.
1: It's a special Labor Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, happy to be joined by John Mark Grody. He's the COO of the Coming Home Network. John Mark, good morning.
7: Morning, Annie. Thanks for having
1: me on. It's good to have you. And, you know, Labor Day is our once-a-year government-approved Sabbath, so to speak, uh, that that being, you know, a day of leisure and rest to appreciate the work that we have done. And, and leisure is actually going to be the topic of our discussion today. So, yeah. I want to start off defining our terms, because I think leisure is definitely a word that has different connotations for different people. So, What is the Catholic understanding of leisure?
7: Sure. Well, you know, one of the best resources out there is Joseph Pieper's book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. The basic gist is when we think of leisure these days uh, in a worldly sense, we tend to think of simply that break in work that we take in order to go do more work. And that is decidedly not the kind of leisure that we mean as Catholics. It's certainly not the kind of leisure that God has called us to, commanded us to take on the Sabbath, which is a kind of leisure that is not for work. In fact, it's not for anything else other than itself. It's to be in the presence of God. We work to make a space for that leisure. just like we work to make space for, those, for the relationships with fellow humans in our life, we work to make space for that leisure, that, pre- that time in the presence of God. So that kind of leisure is not for work. Work is for leisure.
1: Well, you mentioned Peeper's leisure, the basis of culture. What kind of yeah. culture are we trying to create here?
7: Well, certainly, the culture of work, I do recall him saying that the the culture of work tends to become all-encompassing, it tends to devour everything, and there's a reason for that. I mean, we, we either, at the base of our being, we either rely on God or we rely on ourselves, and to the degree that we don't rely on and trust in God, we have to begin to drift more to the direction of creating our own worldly security, our own worldly peace and fulfillment. And so, work, when it's not bound up with a true leisure tends to take over and devour everything else, and even devours the leisure that we have left over. And so, when God commands us to take a Sabbath, there must be a kernel of that true leisure, that time in the presence of God for which everything else is, uh, is and exists. And that kernel is supposed to do the opposite of the work culture. It's to spill over and take over our work so that our work takes on the character of our prayer. And not vice versa.
1: Well God doesn't just command it, does he? He actually right. sets the example for us.
7: Yeah, yeah. After after his creation he 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 set and observed his world and said, It is good. And that, that gives us a great image of what the Sabbath must be like. You know, it's, it's it's interesting to think about so within the week we're called to the Sabbath day. But we can't, we kinda can think of concentric circles in our life and that all the circles of our life, large and small, need to have a kernel of, of a Sabbath within the work. You know, our week should have a Sabbath day. Well, our day should have a Sabbath hour. And, and even if in that Sabbath hour, you know, would be our, our prayer time for that day. But even within our prayer life, we've got to make a distinction between kinds of prayer, too, right? Because some of our prayer is very active. We're asking, or we're petitioning, or we're praising, or we're thanking. But there has to be, even within that prayer life, a kernel, a Sabbath. We stop acting. We stop doing. And we sit back, and we are in the presence of God. We receive from God. That, in fact is again the most important part of prayer. And so there, ha- in all the concentric circles of our life, large and small, there has to be this kernel of stepping back and being in the presence of God, receiving from God, and that has to then characterize the spillover and convert the rest of that time and space in our lives.
1: That's really beautiful. You know, you, you've touched on this in, in various points in the conversation already, but just to, to lay it out here, John Mark, what yes. do we risk as Catholics if we think of our leisure time as something that doesn't include prayer or worship or God in general?
7: Well, I, you know, I think we know those Sundays or those holidays or those vac- vacations that we take away from our work and we fill with things that, that make us then feel like we need a vacation from our vacation, <laughs> you know? Yeah either because we didn't stop working or because we simply uh, treated this break in the work as a time to indulge, as a time to to turn more inward rather than to turn outward. And we really risk everything, and this is why it's one of the commandments, because God doesn't just, he certainly doesn't need our worship, he certainly doesn't just want our worship, but this is also about, like, what is our only true good. Our life will be devoured by our work, our life will be devoured by our own self-reliance, and we will lose our faith and trust in God unless we put a flag in the sand, put ourselves in the presence of God, and start there. That has to be the basis, the foundation, the working foundation of our life.
1: So let's talk in practical terms as we close out our conversation here. We're talking to John Mark Grodi from the Coming Home Network, and he actually has an entire hour conversation on this with his brother, Father Peter Grodi, at mm-hmm. and. I'm just wondering, John Mark, I mean, in, in practical terms here, how would you yes. encourage people, Christians especially, to rethink their leisure time today with what's left of Labor Day and, and always in our lives?
7: Yeah, well, I, you know, I'd take a moment to go look at the Catechism and look at the very, very brief section on the kinds of prayer and recognize that even within our prayer life, there's the active prayer and then there's the prayer where we sit back and we receive from God. And we need to look all up and down the concentric circles of our life and, and recognize this distinction. I mean, think about it in our human relationships. If all we do is talk and act and do stuff, but we never sit back and just be in the presence of the other person, listen to them, receive from them, there's no relationship. It has to start from that place. And so our, our prayer life needs a Sabbath. It needs that moment of stepping back and receiving from God. Our day needs a Sabbath hour. Our week needs a Sabbath day. Our year needs a Sabbath time. We need a retreat once in a while. Mm-hmm. Our relationships need a Sabbath, that time where we listen and are present rather than talking. So, you know, review that that reality, that distinction, and then look up and down your life, reflect, and look for those. It, 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 it's small. It's one day out of the week. It's one time out of the day. But put that Sabbath back in.
1: And Labor Day is a great day to get started on that great front. <laughs> We've been talking to John Mark Grodi again. Deepinchrist.com is where you can go watch an entire podcast on this with Father Peter Grodi as well. And John, Mark, really appreciate the conversation this morning and have a happy Labor Day.
7: Likewise, Annie. Thank you.
1: You bet. And you're listening to a Labor Day special here on the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour.
8: The kids got new supplies for back to school. So what do the parents get? Well, we suggest treating yourself to some good coffee and the Mystic Monks of Wyoming have a number of blends to choose from.
1: And when you link to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, SONRISEMORNINGSHOW.COM, we earn a commission on whatever you buy.
8: You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug and a water bottle for your kid in our online store. Check out
1: our store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at SUNRISEMORNINGSHOW.COM.
3: Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. We hear these days of a vocation crisis, and many people ask, why is God not calling laborers to work in the vineyard as priests, deacons, and religious? The truth of the matter is that God has not stopped calling, but that there are so many voices contrary to his that his voice is often drowned out. Jesus invites us to pray. Ask the Master of the Harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Many times we underestimate the power of prayer. Prayer for vocations should be a part of our daily prayers. Encouraging our youth to pursue a vocation to the priesthood, to the diaconate, and to the religious life is also a way of asking the Master of the Harvest to send laborers for his harvest. Our young people need our encouragement. They need to know that we care, that we realize the good in them. The Lord will not desert us. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us without shepherds for his flock, without laborers for his harvest. This is Bishop Roger Foys of the Diocese of Covington. I encourage you to pray daily for vocations to the priesthood, the diaconate, and the religious life. God bless you.
8: Maybe you've seen his film Poverty, Inc. He's online at povertycure.org. Michael Miller joining us as we unpack Catholic social teaching, especially when it comes to the economy and economics in general. Michael, good morning.
9: Matt, good to be with you.
8: So the most influential, I guess the, the cornerstone of Catholic social teaching in the modern era is Rerum Novarum, the encyclical written in the late 19th century by Pope Leo XIII. What was going on uh, well, I guess what wasn't going on in the uh, late 19th century that caused the Pope to say, hey, we need to rearticulate the principles of Catholic teaching to apply to this modern era?
9: In your question, I think you answer part of the question, which is very important, is that while it's the cornerstone of modern Catholic social teaching, Rerum Novarum in 1891 was not the beginning of Catholic social teaching. And, and it really, what Leo XIII did it was go back, as you just said, and looked at, the principles of how Catholics think about society and the economy and government, and applied this to the modern uh, period. So, I mean, we, what was going on? I mean, this was a really tumultuous time. You really have the deep impacts of two revolutions the French Revolution, with its focus on democracy and individualism, and then uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, great volatility. Um, Edmund Burke described uh, the French Revolution, he said, many parts of Europe are in open disorder. There's confusion, a general earthquake in the political world. And so there was a lot of a shift into individualism, a reduction of civil association, a centralization in the state, uh, the way the family was going. You're moving really to a uh, nuclear family, but an unstable nuclear family. Transformation. In the Industrial Revolution, you had new conditions of labor. You know, one of the things that's really striking is urbanization, So many people were moving from rural conditions into urban conditions. Uh, Let me give you an example. In the year 1800, London had 600,000 people. In 1910, and this is just 20 years after Leo uh, wrote his uh, encyclical, there were 7 million people. New York is even more more stark. In 1800, in New York, there were 25,000 people living in New York. By 1910, again, 7 million people living in New York. So you have this huge transformation. You have the Industrial Revolution changing the way people are working, a host of things going on, and really a move from a group understanding to an individual, from a guild and connections to entrepreneurs and to um, individuals, and then really a whole change from the Enlightenment, the effects of the Enlightenment on the way we understand the person, rationality, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's this You know, it sounds abstract, but there's all these things going on in society. And in the context of that, you have the rise of liberalism, socialism, Marxist Communist Manifesto, um, the Revolutions of 1848, all these things going on. And And the Holy Father said, okay, wait a minute, we need to give some direction on how to think about what he called the social question.
8: And the social question is really the the question at the heart of humanity as far back as you can trace it, uh, but as you mentioned, new obstacles, new opportunities in some ways, and here we see the beginning of the confusion in a democratic society where there's this uh, huge tension worldwide between free-market capitalism, and state-sponsored socialism. And really, for the Church to have established that without ethics applied, without the uh, the consideration of the dignity of the human person, no economic system is going to save the world.
9: Nor is any state system going to save the world. You know, Benedict XVI in Salvi, he talks about top progress and this idea that we can somehow tweak the social or the economic arrangements to come to this perfect situation, whether it's, you know, this perfect ideal free market or the ideal socialist state, none of these are going to, are going to solve man because man is not redeemed by the state. Man is not redeemed by the market. Man is redeemed by love. And so what the Catholic social teaching, Leo Thirteenth did is, that, let's, let's think about how to think about these ideas. And so one of the first things he, of course, he talks about is private property because at that time the socialists were saying we need to abolish private property. We need to restructure the family, and we need to eradicate religion. So these are big threats, of course, to the Church. And so Leo XIII says, well, no, in fact, that trying to, trying to eradicate private property and have the state own it is not going to solve the problems of capitalism, uh, not going to solve the problems of the Industrial Revolution. And so he's he's really trying to guide us. Um, the Church doesn't give technical solutions. This is what Benedict XVI says. The Church doesn't offer technical solutions. It offers an orientation, a way of thinking. But in that orientation, it helps clarify some really important things. And well, at that time, one of the big things is, well, we should, shouldn't we just get rid of private property and have the state take care of everybody so that we create this real sense of unity? And, and Leo XIII said, no, absolutely, you not. You need private property. It is deeply essential, not only for economics, but it's mostly essential for the family.
8: Michael Miller joining us as we unpack Catholic social teaching. So, if someone is headed into work, what does the church call them to do other than clock in and clock out?
9: All right, well, I think, I mean, part of this comes to the question of justice, right? So, Leo, in, in the 13th says in, in Rerum Novarum to, quote, to perform entirely and conscientiously whatever work has been voluntarily, equitably agreed upon, okay? So, the first is when we we're employed and we make a contract to work with someone, the principles of justice are involved. So, there's the the limits like don't he says don't destroy the property make sure you do your best you know work hard there's the whole sense of justice that we have made a promise to do something and we want to fulfill that promise to the best of our ability and then if you go a little bit beyond leo the 13th into john paul ii and uh, his encyclical laborem exercens and other of his writings on work that work is not simply where you go in and clock, clock in and clock out but work is part of the dignity of man right so Work is not simply a punishment from the fall, right? Work existed before the fall. God says to Adam, "And need to be fruitful and multiply and cultivate the garden. So there's something that reflects our nature, created in the image of God, that is part of work. And so when we, when we go into work, um, John Paul II says, in that kind of complex language, he says there's a transitive dimension, that is, all the external things we do, and that we should do that and, and give glory to God in that way. But there's also an intransitive, and that is what work does to us, and it helps us become fully a subject. And then different writers have spoken about this as well. I think probably the most famous in the modern world is St. Jose Maria Escrivá, the founder of Opus Dei, who also talks about how doing our work well, we sanctify the world and ourselves. So We sanctify ourselves, we sanctify the others, and we give glory to God. So, so there's this elements of justice, and there's this, the there's this theological elements of how work reflects our nature as being created in the image of God with reason and ability to apply our intellectual force in our, in our hands to something that serves people. And so the last thing I think is important is that sometimes we think, you know, oh, work is just a way to get money. But John Paul II talks about a business is a community of persons that helps take care of its own needs and provides for the needs and services to other people. So work is really other it's about serving others.
8: Yeah, you can trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam's responsibilities from the very beginning, but let's talk about the employers and what their duties are, because I know that there are also listeners to the morning show that, in addition to working themselves, also oversee others.
9: And here is, again, going back to justice, right? So injustice is giving those the people their due. And a couple of things that Leo points out is he says that the dignity of the human person is to be respected, and ennobled. And so it says if we look at both natural reason, so just thinking like natural law or using our reason, and the Christian philosophy, one, gainful occupations are not a mark of shame to man, but of respect. So I'm talking about the rights of workers and employees I'm kind of moving here. But this is really important. See, Judaism and Christianity both recognize work as something dignified, right? So now for Greeks and most pagans, um, manual work, is servile. It's what slaves do. Judaism and Christianity recognize the dignity of work. And so recognizing work as dignified, the rights of the not only employee do a good job, but the employer to recognize that this is a fundamentally human act. And so he says, because of that, because it's a dignified act and a act, Leo says, it is, quote, shameful and inhuman, however, to use men as things for gain and to put no value on them than what they are worth in muscle and energy. And so the core responsibility of the employer is to not treat a person like a thing, not merely what you'd call utilitarianism, right? You talked about the Garden of Eden. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, okay, Cardinal Scola in his book, The The Nuptial Mystery, talks about this. God gives Adam Eve. And what does Adam say? He says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So he sees this intersubjective relationship. Adam and Eve are both subjects, not merely objects. But after the fall, what happens? The subjective nature gets covered, and Adam begins to treat Eve as an object, as a thing to be used. It happens in work, too. We can treat our employees as merely things to be used as for only utility, and we forget that they are subjects. And so the real duty, I think the core duty of how to treat a worker, is to recognize that they are a person, a subject with their own hopes and dreams and wants and desires. If we begin to see a person like that, then a lot of the other elements of justice fall into place. We don't merely treat them as a thing. And so Leo says, okay, what does that mean? Well, we have to pay them fairly. We have to give them adequate periods to attend religious obligations. And this is also deep in the understanding of what is work. Six days you shall work, says the Bible, and on the seventh you shall rest. So work is a command, rest is a command. And I think, especially in a modern utilitarian society in which we live, we can forget the importance of the Sabbath. We can forget the importance of not just a weekend where you relax, like John Paul talks about, Domini, but really creating space where people can have the freedom for worship so that they can attend their religious obligations. And then the other, of course, is just payment. And just payment is really uh, complex, because how do you decide what is a just wage? Again, Leo quotes the Bible, says, Behold, the wages of laborers which have been kept back by you unjustly cry out. And so Catholic teaching is clear that withholding wages or not paying justly is really a sin that cries out to heaven.
8: Michael Miller, if we want to find more about you and maybe about Poverty, Inc., your film, where do we go?
9: Poverty, Inc., Inc. Dot org and you can connect with me through social media and everything else at com.
8: all right linked at sunrise morning show.com thanks so much michael have a great day
9: all right thanks matt you too
8: i'm matt Swain. thanks for listening to the best of the sunrise morning show it's 35 minutes past the hour
10: this is father rob jack with a catechism moment in the world in which we live the virtue of chastity is something that, if it is not ignored, is often mocked. Paragraph 2337 gives a definition of chastity. It says there, Chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. The virtue of chastity is both the gift of God, and it also requires human effort. Virtues develop through their daily practice, and chastity is no exception. Paragraph 2342 states that self-mastery is a long and an exacting work. One can never consider it acquired once and for all. Paragraph 2344 expresses the most difficult part for us today. Chastity presents an eminently personal task. It also involves a cultural effort, for there is an interdependence between personal betterment and the improvement of society. We can see in our own world what fruits unchastity has produced. Divorce, teenage pregnancy, abortion on demand, contraceptives in schools, many people with sexually transmitted diseases. It seems that society views people today as possessing only instincts. And since we cannot stop instincts, we have to protect against them. God teaches us that we are not driven by instincts, but by human reason, in which we can control ourselves and shape ourselves into truly responsible people. The bodies and souls that God has given us are sacred. They are to be respected and cherished, disciplined and loved. When we can show that example to a world based on crass personal pleasure, devoid of consequences, perhaps, then, we may produce in this world a culture of chastity and a culture in which there is a well-ordered love of God, love of self, and love of neighbor.
1: John Grabowski is with us now He's professor at Catholic University of America John, welcome back to the show
11: Good morning Anna, good to be with you
1: It's good to have you And a study came out from Baylor University Showing that Catholics overall Are more emotionally committed to their workplaces Than evangelicals and mainline Protestants Now my first question to you is Does that finding surprise you and why or why not?
11: I guess it doesn't surprise me that much, because I think our faith gives us a framework to think about how the natural contributes to and is part of our Christian vocation. As Catholics, we tend not to dichotomize the world from our faith in the way that some of our Protestant brothers and sisters do. So it's easier to see the overlap, I guess, between um, how we work to support our families and our commitment to follow the Lord.
1: Can you remind us of Catholic social teaching when it comes to the dignity of work?
11: Absolutely. Um, St. John Paul II really articulated this beautifully in his encyclical on human work, Laborum Exercens. He pointed out to us that if we look at Genesis, we can see that work is part of our human dignity god created adam and placed him in the garden to till and to keep it in other words to work and that was part of his call his vocation the charge given to him by god now it's true that sin the fall adds the element of toil and drudgery the thorns and thistles mm-hmm. that the uh, that work often uh, confronts us with nonetheless work is more basic than the the reality of sin in the world. Work is part of our human dignity. It's part of what God created us to do.
1: Now, it's not easy to paint with a broad brush here, but do you think it's possible that this idea of the dignity of work is really just ingrained in Catholics, that it could lead us to being more attached to our work? Or do you think we're just generally workaholics?
11: (laughs) Well, I hope it's the former and not the latter. I mean, again, I think our faith gives us a framework to think about and to integrate these different dimensions of our lives rather than dichotomize them. So in that sense, I, I do think it's, it's ingrained in us. Um, it's, it's, part, it's kind of in our DNA as Catholics to see um, our work, our family lives, our day-to-day ordinary life as part of our Christian vocation and how we're called to live
3: it out.
1: I thought it kind of interesting in, in the story on this, they were talking about how the attachment to work becomes less and less as the company gets bigger and bigger. Does that make sense to you from a Catholic perspective, perhaps?
11: Well, I think it makes sense from a human perspective, because as the company gets bigger and bigger, it's a much more impersonal entity, and you don't see it in terms of the real interpersonal relationships that um, are part of a smaller business, a smaller organization where it's easier to feel like I'm part of this, I'm invested in this, and the way I work is going to impact all of these people whom I know and have relationships with. I mean, I, 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 there wasn't enough data in the in this story about the survey, but I wonder if that would be true for people of other faiths and not just Catholics, mm-hmm. that bigger companies, people just tend to feel less
9: attached to.
1: Sure. I'm curious, this idea of the dignity of work, does any other religious tradition, Christian or not, have any kind of teaching like the Catholic Church does?
11: That's a great question. And honestly, I'm not sure. I I would think that Judaism in most branches of judaism has an understanding of work that might be in a lot of ways similar simply because they share the old testament with us and they they can see how work is intrinsic to our human vocation as well certainly some protestant traditions are aware of i mean the the whole idea of the protestant work ethic kind of flows out of this calvinism tended to see work and hard work in particular as one of the so- visible signs of election for those who are predestined to salvation. So that was supposed to translate into working hard, but I'm not aware of any other uh, faith tradition that articulates this in quite the same way or quite as extensively as Catholic social teaching has.
1: How would you say that Catholic social teaching and the dignity of work differs from the ideas of something like the prosperity gospel, which has become fairly popular?
11: Yeah, um, (laughs) unfortunately. But one of the really interesting things is, if we look at the New Testament, especially look at, like, Mark's Gospel, It seems like there have been versions of the prosperity gospel around since the beginning, because in Mark's gospel, the disciples keep wanting to experience all kinds of blessings without the costs of discipleship, without the cross. And Mark is constantly having Jesus challenge and correct the disciples to correct that misunderstanding. So, but I think our understanding of the dignity of work, how it's something that's part of our human vocation, is a much deeper and much richer understanding than something as simplistic as the prosperity gospel that you know if you if you obey god if you love god you're always going to just experience blessing and happiness Um, that kind of takes the cross out of the picture and certainly again our understanding of not just creation but the fall reminds us that no uh, struggle and pain um, that can be part of our our vocation to work as well because sometimes work, as much as we're committed to it, there is an element of drudgery, an element of thorns and thistles that we have to contend with. But that's that's part of our life as Christians. That's part of our, our taking up our cross and being willing to follow the Lord.
1: Absolutely. Now, John, uh, one final question, because there might be Catholics listening right now, and they don't feel overly emotionally attached to their job, let alone satisfied with the work that they're doing, how would you encourage someone to take a different view of their work if they aren't so satisfied right now?
11: Well, um, I mean, I think it's important for us to see our work, but really the whole of our lives in light of our faith, and recognize that our feelings can kind of come and go. Sometimes, and I mean, it's it's true even in something like marriage sometimes we feel closer sometimes we feel more distant in our relationship with the lord sometimes prayer is easy we're experiencing consolation sometimes it's more of a struggle um, but when we see the big picture in the light of our faith and we keep living um, the way we're called to our feelings follow eventually mm-hmm. so um... i guess i would encourage people to hang in there um and to 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 look at the big picture, um, not necessarily the day-to-day monotony and drudgery, but the big picture of why is it that they're doing what they're doing as Christians.
1: John Grabowski, professor at Catholic University of America. John, I hope you'll come back and discuss this again sometime. Thanks so much.
8: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: Most definitely. You're listening to a special Labor Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back.
0: The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, Resuscitation of the Rosary, a Fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org.
8: Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels – online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com franchise opportunities available.
5: Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com.
12: I used to wonder if God really cared, why it mattered what church I went to, or why I even bothered with faith at all. Then I started praying more often and going to church. What happened? My relationships got stronger and I felt a peace that I never had before. I realized that God in my life was the difference between occasionally being happy and finding lasting joy. If you're looking for something more, check out CatholicsComeHome.com.
8: Well, it is Labor Day weekend, and that's a great time for us to remember the great gift of work, but also to eat good food together. And so it only makes sense that we talk today to Rita Heikenfeld, our Bible Foods correspondent from AboutEating.com, about some Labor Day Bible food recipes that you can maybe include in your feast. Rita, good morning.
6: Well, good morning, and what a a timely time to talk about good food.
8: Well, I mean, that's really the essence of what you do and what we talk about all the time. You put the work in, and then you sit back and enjoy the food that you've made. So there's a lot of ways to look at this. And I know a lot of people will be barbecuing, so we got to talk about pork. Now, pork, forbidden for the Israelites in the book of Leviticus, but then Peter has his vision in the book of Acts where he's told to kill and eat, and it's his way of understanding that now Gentiles are included in the plan of salvation as well. But what's a good pork recipe that you've got for us this week?
6: Well, you know what? One of my favorites, it's not on the grill, but we have to have it on our Labor Day picnic table, and it's called BLT dip. I'm not kidding you, Matt. This is so easy, and you better make like a double or triple recipe of it. Um, What you do is you fry some uh, bacon, and I usually, before I fry bacon that calls for it being crumbled when you um, put it in the recipe, I usually cut it up real fine. And by the way, you can cook uh, bacon ahead of time and keep it in the fridge uh, for, oh, goodness, several days. So anyway, what you're going to do is you're going to take – six slices of cooked and crumbled bacon. And then what I do um, is I'll just reserve a little bit bit of that bacon for garnish. And then I just mix up some sour cream and mayo, um, some tomatoes, plum, or whatever I have, um, and I blend that all up. And then I just refrigerate that for a few hours. And then I just put that in a bowl, and I surround it with, uh, like, leaf lettuce leaves and crackers um, and sprinkle the reserved bacon on top but there's just something about the bacon and the sour cream and mayo and tomatoes. you think you're eating a sandwich, but it's much creamier.
8: BLT anything sounds good to me, Rito. So this BLT dip looks amazing, and of course people can find that at abouteating.com. While we're talking about things we can grill, uh, it's important to point out that a number of places in the Bible we see beef talked about as something that you eat when you're celebrating with people.
6: Yeah, and you know, because when you think about it too— um, Beef especially was not for the, the everyday, uh, what we call middle-class or, or poorer person. It was basically for um, the more wealthy. But during feasts and celebrations, a fatted calf was all, um, sometimes brought out. And you see this in, in Genesis in chapter 18 uh, when Abraham it says, he ran to the herd and took a fatted calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant to prepare it. Um, and then uh, when we think about the prodigal son and uh, in Luke 15, in Chapter 15, sort of the same scenario, um, when the prodigal son returned, the father brought again out a fatted calf. So um, beef is always a special thing. And what I have been doing, of course, we do the steaks and the burgers. But if you're doing uh, like a campfire out, it's so fun to do what we call those hobo dinners in a packet, and a foil packet. Um, and I'm assuming you've done those in some fashion over the years, right?
8: I've never done them quite like you have described here. So give us the idea and how the execution works, because the execution is the fun part.
6: And this, this recipe, it's called Campfire Hobo Dinners in a Packet Foil Packet, and it's pretty detailed because I, I just thought I'd better just go from um, 1 to 10 on it. So basically you're going to take some ground beef and mix that uh, with a, a little bit of olive oil and um, some Canadian steak seasoning if you have it. And the secret is a couple tablespoons or so of powdered ranch salad dressing or even dried Italian salad dressing, because that's got lots of seasonings and garlic in it. So basically, what you're going to do, you're going to mix all that up, and then when I patty out the patties, I always poke a hole in the center. And what that helps do is prevent it from humping up in the middle during grilling, because, you know, we tend to have a thicker center. So if you just poke a hole in it, that's perfect. And then um, you just set those patties aside, and then I like to prepare some veggies, and I'll mix some potatoes and mushrooms, maybe onions together, um, or you can keep the onions separate. You can just mix those together um, with a little steak seasoning or not. So basically you've got some nice onions to just sort of put on top of that patty. So then you take a couple sheets of foil, and then what I'll do is um, if I don't mix the onions with the uh, potatoes and mushrooms, I'll put an onion slice on the foil, and then I'll put the, um, the vegetable mixture on top, and then I'll put the hamburger on top of that, um, and then I'll basically just seal those packs pretty tight. Um, and then I'll grill them, and I, we usually grill them on medium, about 350 and when they're done, they don't take long, um, maybe 20 minutes just or even maybe 30, depending upon the size. And then as soon as you open them, you put the cheese on top, and then you just seal it again for a few minutes while you pass them around. The cheese melts. You've got really wonderful dinners. You've got your veggie, your protein, and people just love it. And it's easy cleanup, too.
8: Yeah, it looks amazing. And uh, you, you mentioned the campfire. You can put those over the coals, I bet, too. So... Uh, That's a great idea and uh, a little bit of a different spin for people who, uh, you know, kind of have always done burgers the same way. Now, beans, there are a whole bunch of different ways to have beans. You can have maybe a summer green bean salad. Uh, You can maybe have baked beans. Uh, What kind of recipe are you sharing today?
6: Well, you know, I just did a fun—it's funny. I just did a green bean salad um, last night for um, some friends, and it was just steamed green beans, and then I tossed them with a little olive oil and dill and garlic. But the recipe I wanted to share— it's called Bodacious Baked Beans. We've shared this recipe before. I've gotten so many requests for it. Um, we all love baked beans, but this brings baked beans to a new height. And you can do this, oh, gosh, days ahead. So basically you take your um, some cans of your favorite baked beans, you know, the ones with all the seasonings, you know, the ready-to-eat beans. Then to that you add a can of regular plain beans, and I love chickpeas, and I'm assuming you might like chickpeas or pinto. I'm not sure what your favorite plain bean is. Um, But whatever it is, you add that. And then you stir in some barbecue sauce some brown sugar, um, an onion, and some bacon. And the secret ingredient there, really weird but it works, is like a large tart apple. You just chop it but don't peel it. And basically, you just mix everything together. You pour it in a sprayed casserole. You bake it again at 350, about 40 minutes or so. And you'll know it's done because the center's bubbly um, and it's not real runny. And by the way, it gets thicker as it cools. So that's delicious, hot, room temperature, or even cold. And I'm not kidding you. Once you fix uh, baked beans like that, you'll never go back to the plain canned.
8: Well, I'm glad to get that recipe. And I have tried the green apple, in a a baked bean recipe and it it does it's it puts it over the top and of course it is bible foods and we know from second samuel that king david ate beans there's also beans in the ezekiel bread recipe from ezekiel chapter four but uh, i know that there are a lot of people who are looking for maybe a good easy dessert idea and you have a fairly simple one for us this week before we let you go
6: uh, real quick, and you know, eggs, my goodness, how many times are eggs mentioned in the Bible? Yes. and Very deviled different. eggs
8: are a great picnic compliment, always. I can't keep them in stock. I mean, every, as soon as I make them, they're gone. I blink and they're gone.
6: No, oh, and as I'm making them, I've <laughs> I'm eating them, too. And my deviled egg recipe is just easy, um, just real quick. I just um, mash up the yolks and put a little mayonnaise and just a squirt of Dijon mustard or regular mustard and a little pepper, no salt, because the mustard's sort of salty. That's all we do, and they're they're just delicious. They're not fancy, but they're good. But my recipe for dessert, I love this. It's called chocolate chip pound cake. Oh, so good. And you start off with a yellow cake mix, and then you add a little box of vanilla instant pudding to it, some canola oil, and then you need four eggs, some sour cream, and if you like, um, some mini or regular chocolate chips. And you just beat all that together, and you bake it. I like to bake it in a bunt pan. When it comes out, you sprinkle it with powdered sugar. Um, my uh, daughter-in-law's sister, Lottie, gave me that recipe. And we, again, it's like deviled eggs. Slices, it slices well. It's a good keeper and a wonderful picnic dessert
8: well these are some great recipe ideas we've got chocolate chip pound cake as well as the bodacious baked beans and the hobo dinners and all of it uh you can find through sunrise morning click on over to about com and hopefully people get some good rest from their labor even god rested on the sabbath so it's good for us to rest with friends and enjoy the fruits of the work that we put in the rest of the year at least one day of course god builds one day into every week where we ought to be doing that anyway but in the meantime Rita Heikenfeld, thank you so much. We've got you linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Have a great Labor Day weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.
6: Yep, we'll talk to you soon, Matt, and great weekend for all of our listeners, too.
8: Well, that'll do it for this special Labor Day weekend edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Matt Swaim for Anna Mitchell and all of our guests. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.
1: Let's kick off our Labor Day celebration on the Sunrise Morning Show by praying for the intercession of the man described by the church as a shining example for all workers, the carpenter St. Joseph. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God our Father, creator and ruler of the universe, in every age you call man to develop and use his gifts for the good of others. With St. Joseph as our example and guide, Help us to do the work you have asked and come to the rewards you have promised. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. And the prayer to St. Michael. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell, Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, happy Labor Day, and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell and Matt Swaim and I like to celebrate Labor Day by taking a deep dive into Catholic social teaching. And so this hour, will be full of some excellent conversations on work, the dignity of the worker and the human person, and really what the Catholic Church brings to the table when it comes to issues like labor and the economy in general. Hope you can stick around for a wonderful hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt?
8: It's always great to catch up with Steve Ray. You can find him online at catholicconvert.com. Dot com, You can find his books, his videos, and even pilgrimage information there. Steve, good morning.
13: Good morning, Matt. Good to be with you.
8: So this is a job for me, or is it a career, or is it just my work? I guess that's a question, right? Uh, when we look at the people who are doing things in the Bible, um, then, I mean, there's so many different professions that people do. I mean, you can go back to the Garden of Eden and find God commanding Adam and Eve to do work.
13: Absolutely, work is something built right into the rhythm of creation. Even God worked seven, uh, six days and then ceased from his work on the 7th, built that right in. And Adam and Eve, a lot of people think that a work started because of the fall. We had it pretty easy, just lounging around in the Garden of Eden, enjoying all the fresh fruit and apples and things and uh, then Adam and Eve sinned, and all of a sudden now work came into the picture, but really that wasn't the case at all I have a um a, there's a popular movie, "Oh brother, where art thou it was a couple maybe a decade or so ago, and they're singing a song we'd like to hang the Jerk who invented work and in the big rock candy mountain but that's kind of the way it it Uh, uh, it seems to people that it was first, we never had to work, it was just to be pleasurable time in the garden. But actually, right from the beginning, God intended work to be a rhythm for us in the world.
8: And it's all throughout the scriptures, of course. There are ways that work is abused, and uh, ways that people uh, don't attend to the work the way that they should. And, you know, that's that's really what you hear in the fall, that, uh, you know, Adam's going to have a lot harder time, doing his work. But there's a great psalm, and this is actually one of my dad's favorite psalms, Psalm 127, that really kind of gives us a pretty good understanding on the perspective regarding work.
13: Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. In other words, one of the important things to remember about work is that God intends us to do it And that as part of it, even though now after the fall there's going to be thorns and thistles and it's going to be by the sweat of our brow and much more difficult. In other words, uh, the, the nature is going to resist us to a certain degree. But ultimately, for work to succeed, it needs the blessing of God. And like you said, one Psalm 127, "...unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it." And so our attitude should be one that work is from God, and that we should ask God to participate and to bless our work and to give us the grace to do it well.
8: All right, so we know Adam was a gardener. Uh, what are some of the other jobs we see right out of the gates in the book of Genesis?
13: Well uh, first even before the fall Adam and Eve were to tend and till the garden then we have Cain their son who is a tiller of the ground he continued that uh, tradition and then Abel though starts a new one he becomes a keeper of the flocks and he actually offered a sheep as a as a uh, offering to God then Noah after the flood, becomes, he's first a shipbuilder, <laughs> and then after that, he is a farmer, and he plants a vineyard, and unfortunately, he makes the wine and gets drunk and gets in trouble over that. Nimrod, who is his great-great-grandson of Noah, becomes a hunter and a warrior. After the time of Noah, they could eat meat again. Oh, up until that time, you only ate plants. But after the time of Noah, it was granted to man to eat animals' meat, and so Nimrod became a hunter. And in the whole Bible... If you look at the whole Bible, there are really two main careers, uh, the work that people did. One was shepherds. We see that right from the beginning and all the way through scriptures, even Jesus and John 10 saying, I am the good shepherd, that just shows that uh, in that part of the land, Shepherding of sheep and goats was one of the most important careers that there were. And actually, some of the most famous people, if you think about it, too, is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were known to be itinerant nomadic shepherds. Moses, 40 years, a shepherd in the wilderness. David was a shepherd. That's how he was found to be an anointed king when he was out being a shepherd. And uh, even the shepherds there were, at the time of Jesus' birth, were the first ones to be told about that so you have that shepherds is number one and also farmers because the whole land of israel in the middle east was agrarian that's how they they survived and if you didn't and that's actually how they got in trouble with all the gods like baal and asher because they were gods of the rain and they fell for these gods because if it didn't rain you couldn't grow crops so shepherds and farming were the two big careers that we see in the bible
8: But not only that, before Jesus begins public ministry, he's 30 years in a house of a carpenter.
13: Absolutely. They learned how to do a lot of things, and there were, along with, um, there was shepherds and brickmakers in Egypt, fishing. When you get up north to the Sea of Galilee, it's a really huge fishing, and the smoking and preparing of fish, carpenters and builders. Jesus was a carpenter, and that's how they known him, as you are Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. And that was their builders. And we, th- we re- think of them being as carpenters like we know today, but actually it was probably a stonemason, probably a day laborer all day long, humping rocks around, building things, cutting stones. That was what they probably did 12 hours a day. So Jesus was that. You also had Amos, who was one of the prophets that starts, it says Amos, who is from Tekoa, which is just near Bethlehem, said that he was a dresser of sycamore trees. Probably all the men of, of Israel were military. Some of them were full-time, but most of them were like the reserves. They were out farming and things until a battle came in, and then they all grabbed their swords, said goodbye to their wives, and went off to battle and came back to finish the crops. So you had all of them the military. Levites were one twelfth of the of the people because they were one whole tribe and they were all in the priesthood. So you have that careers as well. There's a lot of different careers, but I, I like thinking of Jesus and Joseph. That that's one, and we'll get to that in a little bit about how even uh, the catechism refers to Jesus as a worker.
8: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because uh, these are not just stories of you know people doing those work back then, those works back then. Everybody who's listening right now has to do something to feed themselves or feed their family. Uh, And so what does the Church teach us about the dignity of work and how we should approach it?
13: It condemns idleness right from the very beginning, And, and you could go through the book of Proverbs. It is full of admonitions about work and not being idle and doing things honestly and with integrity, and all your work should be fairly done and with a high quality of excellence and so on. But you, it, uh, Paul, in his has some very strong words about idleness, and in Second Thessalonians 3:10 it says, "This we command you. He doesn't command people a lot, but he, this is what we command you, that if you do not work." neither shall you eat. What was happening is a lot of people said, the Lord's going to come back, so I'm quitting my job. I'm just going to sit around and pray for today and tomorrow, and he'll probably be back the day after tomorrow. And so they were quitting their jobs and living in idleness now, thinking they didn't have to do anything. But Paul, over and over, especially in Thessalonians 1 and 2, commands them to work and do not live in idleness, but work what is good with your hands, he says, so that you can take care of your own families and Help those who are in need, so that we work not just to take care of our own families, but we work also to help our brothers and sisters and those around us. And as Christianity then redeems work, in a sense, there's a, there's a sense of grace that comes in. It takes work above just manual labor, what I do with my hands or my mind, but it also becomes a work for God. It becomes a way to bring glory to God. And I remember when I was young and an early Christian, um, Matt, and I started my own business, and I used to tell people when I went out to get new work, when there'd be competitive bids, I would always tell them, you know, the reason you should hire me over these competitors is because I'm a Christian. And they said, what's that got to do with it? I said, because I do the work for a different reason than everybody else does. I do the work for the glory of God. And if he is my boss and I'm doing it for him, you're guaranteed you're going to get the best possible service. And that's what grace has done in redemption and has raised our physical labors to a higher level where they actually become a work that can bring glory to God. And that should be very special in our minds. Even if it's a mundane task, I'm doing it for God, and I'm going to make the best widgets ever because I'm bringing glory to God by doing this.
8: And we're all called to do something to participate in this creative act that god has given us as human beings you know G- god created the world and then he created us with free will and abilities to take what he has given us and use it for the good of our families for the good of society for the good of the church great stuff steve ray this morning and uh, of course If we want to connect with you, uh, we can go to CatholicConvert.com. Find out more about your pilgrimages, find out more about your books and videos, and a lot more. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
13: Thank you, Matt. God
8: bless you. I'm Matt Swayman. Thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show.
4: Support is from TBN. Weaving its way through the heart of the Holy Land is a well-worn path that once felt the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, and Jesus. Host David Friedman and Mike Pompeo take a sacred journey of hope along Route 60, the Biblical Highway. Experience the land of the Bible as you've never seen it. In theaters September 18th and 19th, Route 60, the Biblical Highway. Information at Route60.movie. That's Route60.movie.
0: Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to LordTeachMetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to LordTeachMetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB.
8: It's back to school time and back to a busier morning routine. If you're gonna need some help to get going, get yourself a few bags of Mystic Monk coffee.
1: And when you go to the Mystic Monk site through the link you find at sunrisemorningshow.com, you'll give us a boost with a commission on your purchase.
8: While you're at our site, pick up a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug, and perhaps a water bottle for your student. All available in our online
1: store. Find our store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com.
8: Now there's a fast and easy way to get in touch with EWTN. The EWTN everything number. Call 1-800-447-EWTN to get the latest information on programming, special events, pilgrimages, and more. You can even make a donation. Our EWTN Family Viewer Services representatives are ready to help you with whatever your needs may be. The EWTN Everything number. 1-800-447-EWTN.
0: EWTN.
1: Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Donald Calloway, who is author of Consecration to St. Joseph, here to talk about St. Joseph the Worker. Good morning, Father.
14: Hey, good morning.
1: Now, Labor Day, of course, is a secular holiday, a federal holiday um, that we celebrate, but in the Catholic Church you could kind of consider May 1st to be the the Catholic Labor Day, so to speak, the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Why does the Church have a feast devoted to St. Joseph under the title The Worker?
14: Well, it's pretty important because in the mid-20th century, you know, communism posed a real threat to uh, the world and even to the Church. So uh, Pope Pius XII, Um, saw that the Communists were trying to take over May Day, it was called, which was just a secular day to celebrate work. They wanted to turn it into Communist Workers' Day. Well, the Pope at that time said, well, we better stop this. So he declared May 1st the feast day of St. Joseph the worker, showing the true dignity uh, of human work, not like communism was promoting. So it's really amazing.
1: It really is amazing, and I love that that the Holy Father chose St. Joseph for that. How is Joseph a model workman?
14: Well, if you think about it, you know, when God became man in in Jesus Christ taking on human nature, um, he lived in a family and under, you know, the leadership of St. Joseph, and he taught, you know, Jesus that trade of working with his hands and manual labor, you know. I mean, through St. Joseph, God actually did manual labor, and that's what the word manual means, is your hands. So if St. Joseph can, can, can teach Jesus how to do manual labor, well, he's certainly going to be good at teaching us to, to be a good worker as well.
1: Well, it's such an interesting thought that Joseph taught Jesus to work, and then you think, okay, so Jesus is working and thereby raises the dignity of work.
14: Oh, you said it so well. That's exactly right. And and that's why it's important to, to have St. Joseph as that model, because, you know, you don't want to abuse, like, if you have employees, you want to treat them right, you want to give them a just wage, um, and you don't want people to become workaholics either. You know, St. Joseph was not a workaholic. He took time for prayer, for being with his family, for even recreating, and he loved to sleep. You know, a lot of people that just work, 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 St. Joseph tells us, hey, Take a nap, go to sleep.
1: <laughs> Have some rest, just like the Lord rested uh, on the seventh day after creating the world. Now, you've got all kinds of little gems about St. Joseph in your consecration book. Can you tell us about St. Jose Maria Escriva's homily on St. Joseph's workshop?
14: Oh, it's fantastic. It's probably one of the best homilies ever given on St. Joseph. So, yeah, St. Jose Maria Escrivá had a great devotion to him. He kind of unpacked the, the workshop of St. Joseph from the perspective of Joseph being there and Jesus being there, and how we can look at that and see the great love that they had for each other. Um, and he gives almost like a meditation into that, uh, a, a, life, a day in the life, so to speak of St. Joseph's Workshop and uh, him guiding Jesus in that work and that love and affection and tenderness as a father and son. It's really, really profound.
1: It really is. And um, there's also—now, my, my sister is is going through the 33 Days, Father, and she was telling me a story that she read in your book, the story of the miraculous staircase in New Mexico. Can you share that story with our listeners right now?
14: It's, yes, this is incredible. So in the late 19th century, a group of nuns in uh, New Mexico, near Santa Fe, uh, had a man build a chapel for them, and when he was done, they realized he didn't build a way to get up to the loft, now, they had to use a ladder. So they thought, well, we'll have him build us a staircase, but he died, the fellow. So they, they were asking for somebody else, they prayed a novena to St. Joseph, St. Joseph, help us. Well, a man showed up at the door with very few tools, and he said, I'll do it, just let me work in private, please, and, you know, I'll take care of the wood, I'll get everything. And so he built this masterpiece of a staircase that has no nails, it's an architectural wonder, it shouldn't be standing, it's just a marvel. And then he disappeared, and then the sisters realized, wait a minute, we prayed to St. Joseph, this guy shows up, we didn't know who he was. And then years later, decades later, the uh, forestry uh, professional from the United States Forestry Department studied the wood, and he said this wood is only from the area, particular to northern Israel, around Nazareth. So, I mean, incredible. So the sister said, "This is this is Saint Joseph. There's no doubt about it." And I've seen so I've cool. seen this, that, the staircase myself. It's amazing.
1: Well, it's so cool to me because. I think this story tells us, I mean, these are nuns with, you know, this little chapel and all they need is a staircase to get up to a choir loft. That seems like such a small project for someone as great as St. Joseph to worry about. And and it, it just occurred to me, it's like even small things like that are not too small for our Lord or for St. Joseph or our Blessed Mother to address. And how does St. Joseph call us to faith today?
14: Yeah, you know, think, think about St. Joseph again. Um, you know, when he went to, to Bethlehem for the census, they thought they were going to be returning to Nazareth rather soon. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, in his sleep, he told to go, go to flee to Egypt. And, you know, he doesn't have a job lined up. He, they didn't have LinkedIn back then, you know, to help them hook up a, 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 a carpentry, you know, gig over in Egypt. And he, they wouldn't be welcomed over there. You know, the Egyptians at that time hated the Jewish people because they remembered they had, their ancestors had died in the Red Sea. Foreign language, foreign religion. So he was, it was very difficult for him. And tradition says they were there for years.
1: Wow. So
14: he understands. He understands. And ask him to help in your situation, and he will.
1: Ite ad Yosef. Go to Joseph. We've been talking to Father Donald Calloway. He's the author of Consecration to St. Joseph. Go to Consecration to St. Joseph. Dot org to get more information, find a consecration chart, find the book. You can find that linked at sunrise morning com. Father Calloway, really appreciate your time this morning.
14: Thank you, my friend.
1: You bet. Always happy to have you, Father Calloway. And Saint Joseph the Worker, pray for us. You're listening to a special Labor Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks so much for joining us. We are happy to have you along with us. It's now 21 minutes past the hour.
5: You listen to The Sunrise Morning Show. Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of The Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H, at sacredheartradio.com.
10: This is Father Rob Jack with The Heart of St. Paul. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that the problem with Christians is that they act so unredeemed. Chesterton expected Christians to be a joyful people. St. Paul expects the same thing. In the midst of the ups and downs of his missionary journeys and the challenges that he had, he writes to the church at Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Even today, we worry a lot about politics and the economy and the culture, and we don't find, at first glance, much to be joyful about. Paul's response is that our lack of joy is the result of looking at things without the presence of Christ. God is not going to lower gas prices or fix the economy. That's not going to happen. But he constantly reminds us that we're not alone. As brothers and sisters of his son, Jesus, we have hope in this life and in the next. As a church, we have the ability to help each other, especially the poor, the vulnerable, and the elderly along the way. As Christians, we are companions of Jesus Christ. By prayer to God of praise, thanksgiving, and petition, we have help nearby. Rejoice, no matter how low you may feel. You are not alone. The Lord is near. This is what the heart of St. Paul tells us.
1: Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News. Dr. Bunsen, good to have you back.
15: Always good to be with you on a very blessed Labor Day.
1: Yes, and Labor Day is, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, I looked this up, A yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. It was first celebrated as a day in New York City in 1882, and then, a little less than a decade later, Pope Leo XIII wrote the landmark encyclical Rerum Novarum, which, of course, has a particular focus on the dignity of work and the human person. What do we see happening in that time period that there was such a major focus on workers and labor?
15: Well, the the social crisis that uh, prompted Leo to write uh, Rerum Novarum, and he was 81 at the time that uh, this came out. So one would imagine that somebody who's 81 uh, really does not have the assumption, is the unfair assumption is that uh, he's too old, he doesn't quite grasp what the reality is. And yet Leo And Rerum Novarum got his finger exactly on the pulse of where the world was, in particular, uh, Europe and increasingly the United States. And the way to describe it is it was a question of human dignity versus the machine. And we had seen in the decades leading up to the promulgation of Rerum Novarum the transformation of Europe from an essentially agrarian culture with some industry, as we saw uh, pushed forward by the Napoleonic Wars from about 1800 to 1815, and then the rapid invention of new forms of technology and industry. All of this was uh, a good thing, but it brought with it immense ramifications and dire consequences for the workers. Because what you ended up having uh, was a mass of poorly educated workers increasingly concentrated in the cities looking for work in the factories, and the factories themselves became cities. And you had hordes, large numbers of uneducated workers, of laborers forced to work in what were at the time unregulated factories. They were living with their families in almost inhuman, almost unimaginable conditions. Um, If you've ever read the Upton Sinclair novel in 1906 of The Jungle, it Mm -hmm. gives you a rough idea of what this looked like. Women and children worked. They had no contracts. They could be fired. uh, They had no dignity. And the church understood that in these new circumstances, something had to be addressed. And these were genuinely new circumstances because uh, the church has always had the answer to the needs of every time. And in this case, then, uh, the church needed to bring her wisdom uh, to what is important here in terms of the dignity of the human person, and then to begin teasing out what else needs to follow. And the result, in the end, uh, was rerum novarum. But even before we get to that, one of the things that's often overlooked is the effort that was being done already on the ground in the church, especially in Europe and elsewhere, Uh by church leaders, and in several cases, by several saints.
1: Well, tell us more about that.
15: Well, really what we were looking at was um, parishes and dioceses were seeing these new industrial cities and the plight of workers. They were seeing children going uneducated. They were watching people die in unregulated conditions. So imagine how St. John Bosco responded. Yeah. He began working for the care of children caught up in this system. We have Frederick Ozenam in the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And then you also had Christian industrialists, uh, such as Leon Armel in France, uh, who actually lived with his own employees. But then even more theological direction was being formed by some of the bishops across Europe. Uh, I think, for example, of Cardinal Manning of Westminster, even Cardinal Gibbons in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And then one of the most prominent of these was a, a German bishop by the name of Wilhelm von Kettler in Mainz, uh, who really began a kind of social movement uh, that began moving across Europe to provide care. And Leo uh, the Thirteenth actually referred to von Kettler as a kind of predecessor uh, from whom he learned a lot as he was beginning to understand what needed to happen. And so all of this was taking place, and Leo decided that the time had come for a more formal statement of not just principles— but reminding people of the dignity of the human person. And in Rerum Novarum, he laid out the blueprint for what we now refer to as Catholic social teaching.
1: And obviously, we have gone through a few other revolutions since the industrial revolution that you've been describing. I mean, you have the the sexual revolution, the technological <laughs> revolution. Um, those are the two most notable to me anyway. And, you know, thanks to these cultural revolutions, I imagine Leo Thirteenth probably wouldn't even recognize the world today. So how has the church sort of updated Rerum Novarum in the decades since it was promulgated?
15: Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that um, Leo would probably look at the current state of affairs in, on the world stage and just shudder. Uh, I, I think this is in a way why we are so blessed uh, that he gave us the, the St. Michael prayer. And yes. I mean that seriously. Yes, yes. Because he also did, while he may not recognize or, or be absolutely horrified, I think he saw uh, with great prescience, as uh, the popes of the 20th century did, the logical steps that would follow if what they were proposing in their Catholic, in the social encyclicals, were not actually listened to. And this goes beyond even just the warnings about what would happen uh, in, in terms of the disparities of workers versus uh, capital and capital versus workers and, and the embrace of socialism that Rerum Novarum spends a great deal of time talking about, but also Marxism and all the other isms. What I think uh, Leo would do is he would say, these are the principles just once again, uh, this is what I can offer you as a pope, but this is what we can offer you as a church. And I go back to um, John Paul II. Uh, in uh, you were asking me how different popes have looked at this. Well, of course, in 1991, on the centenary of this of Rerum Novarum, John Paul II issued Centesimus Annus. It was his second social encyclical, and in it, he uses the the phrase that Pope Leo XIII, in the footsteps of his predecessors, created a lasting paradigm for the Church. As he says the church, in fact, has something to say about specific human situations, both individual and communal, national and international. So that would really be Leo's response that we do have something to say because the dignity of the human person impels us to do this. But we also have much to say because we're talking about things like the common good and solidarity and subsidiarity, all of the pillars of Catholic social teaching that, that Leo gave us in Rerum Novarum, but that are also. All the more relevant today.
1: What does this have to do with Jesus Christ?
15: <laughs> John Paul II uh, said it in uh, Redemptor Hominis in, in his first encyclical that man is a mystery to himself unless he understands himself through Christ. Mm. And when we place at the heart of Catholic social teaching the dignity of the human person, we see that the human person is made in in the innate image and likeness of God, and therefore possessed of of an innate dignity. That dignity we try to communicate through Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ stands for us as the model of everything that we want to craft uh, to bring others to Christ. And Christ is our hope. He is our anchor. And Christ demonstrates again the dignity of the human person that anchors, as, as uh, Pope Benedict XVI said, we are not simply an NGO. Mm-hmm. We're not a, a, a philanthropic organization. We are, in fact, the Church, and we are trying to bring Christ to them. And Pope, uh, the, the, the successor to Leo Thirteenth, said it best, and Pope St. Pius X, instorare omnia in Christo, restore all things in Christ. And that's what Leo was trying to do here.
1: Well, looking at our world today, Dr. Bunsen, I mean, certainly there's still a slice of the population that wants to push toward Marxism. I mean, for heaven's sake, a democratic socialist was very nearly the democratic presidential nominee uh, (laughs) twice in a row, a couple of times in in recent years. And then there are those who would favor, you know, free market, perhaps unbridled capitalism. Where does the church fall in there?
15: The best way to look at that is what Leo is actually trying to teach us, that there has to be a a harmony. And this is where the importance of uh, the the common good comes in. So, in other words, he he looks systematically uh, at the fact that capital, as he puts it very famously, capital cannot do without labor, nor labor without capital. But then often forgotten is the, the the subsequent line in that where he talks about mutual agreement results in the beauty of good order while perpetual conflict necessarily produces confusion and savage barbarity. Mm. It is that barbarity, but it is also that harmony. So this is why he's able to defend things like the, the rights of property and, of course, the, the role of the family, the proper role of the government. But he always keeps coming back... Christ and the dignity of the human person. As he says, no man may with impunity outrage that human dignity which God himself treats with great reverence, nor stand in the way of a higher life, which is a preparation of the eternal life of heaven. So that's one of the things that he uses then to go into the basic rights of individuals and the family, and then their priority relative to the state. So he balances everything perfectly, that all of society must work together for the common good. But then he also stresses subsidiarity on the fact that we need to have the best decisions made at the local level, at the lowest level possible, where people are actually living.
1: And this is an important point, I think, too, when, when looking at the economy as like this big idea and looking at it as Catholics is that, you know, We are a universal church, and so we Americans need to remember that there is an entire world out there that has to be taken into account and not just our own country, which I think we get caught up in a lot as American Catholics. We've been talking to Dr. Matthew Bunsen. He's executive editor and Washington bureau chief of EWTN News. Doc, if listeners want to connect with you, where do they find you?
15: Uh, You can find me at EWTNnews.com.
1: It's a special Labor Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's now 35 minutes past the hour.
8: Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of
5: Wyoming.
1: And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonrisemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission.
8: Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com.
1: That's sonrisemorningshow.com.
12: I'm Father Timothy shear and these are biblical impressions. Family values is a phrase we are all very familiar with. Of course, the early church had family values, too. We can see this from Acts of the Apostles, where we actually meet several generations of a family that Luke held in high esteem. Timothy worked by Paul's side for a long time, joining the apostle during the second missionary journey to Asia Minor. Timothy's family, at least the women in his family, were also Christian, and apparently well known in the early church. Paul preserves their names for us. Timothy's mother was Eunice, and his grandmother was Lois. We get no further description of Eunice and Lois, but we do get to see them through their son and grandson. Timothy's dedication to the church, his unrelenting work for the truth, his preaching of the gospel, and his love of the Lord. So although we cannot see Eunice and Lois, physically we can see them faith-wise through their son. What a beautiful example of family values. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear.
8: Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Jason Craig. He's a writer, a farmer. He's the editor of Sword and Spade magazine, and uh, we're here to talk about the dignity of work today. Jason, good morning. Good morning, Matt. So it's hard to even know where to begin because there's such a rich social teaching in the life of the church regarding work. Um, what has drawn you to this aspect of Catholic social teaching?
16: Yeah, well. You're right. It's so broad. You don't even uh, it, once you start trying to define it, it gets awkward and weird really quick. But it's really simple. I mean, work is the the mode of relationship that we have with creation. You know, I mean, it's God. The, the creation itself is God's workmanship, and then He entrusts us with continuing that work. And you know, those are the that's, that's the very first commands in the in the garden is basically you know have a family, until and, and keep this place. You know work and family. So, you know, for the men out there that have trouble balancing work and family life, that's, that's kind of how creation was got, got it started. That's a normal thing we're trying to balance, but it is, it's the mode of how we relate to the world itself, meaning how we come to understand the stuff we work with, you know, with dirt and hammers and it, the, the reality of the world itself. It's how we provide for our families. It's how we eat. It's how we, you know, in the normative natural way, get exercise, uh, so it's just, it's so broad. The reason I have a keen interest in it today is I think there is a highly neglected social teaching of the Church, the dignity that work is good, but there's also so much confusion, especially, you know, fathers, that whole work-life balance, all that stuff, um, which is a funny phrase, I mean, as if work is not life, work-life balance, I, mean, I don't even know what that means. There's, there's so much confusion, and now that it seems our entire lives is uploaded, Work has become a weird and confusing realm for a lot of people, where they're either they feel drained of their humanity, uh, they feel abused, they feel maybe too much pride, they feel torn from their families while they're trying to provide for them. It's just uh, it's a it's a big topic, and it's it, it's so overwhelming we don't even see it.
8: I think also it's the United States of America is a weird place for a number of reasons. It's a weird place in the history of civilization. Um, for so many reasons. But for decades, all of our means of production have kind of gone overseas, and we're just this nation of people who work on laptops. And I wonder what that does to our souls when everything has made us, all our work digital
16: and detached. Detached is a great word. Um, you know, there's things that are that in creation that we're meant to be attached to, because that's the means that we come to understand and grow. That's how God works through us, you know? So family, marriage, fathers and sons, brothers, these these things God works for them, and our work is one of those things. So we do retreats on our farm here, St. Joseph's Farm, for fathers and sons, and it's that very problem is, is... You know, a lot of men, their job is uploaded, and one of the means of relationship that work provides is a way to take what you know and love as a father and pass it on to your son. But it's hard to say, you know, it's one thing to say, son, here, I'm going to show you how to split wood, and this is how we heat and warm our family in the winter. And, you know, this is a lesson of provision, and and this is a lesson of foresight and and prudence and hard work and diligence. It's harder to say, son, come look at this spreadsheet. I really nailed this one, you know. Um, So on the farm... These dads come to the sun. Sometimes the suns are, you know, really nihilistic. They're just kind of jaded. And you know what we do throughout the weekend is basically all the work of killing and preparing a feast, meaning we kill the pig. So we kill a pig Friday night. We cool it overnight on Friday and butcher it Friday night. Saturday morning we prepare it. We start cooking it early in the morning about 5 a.m., and then all day we split the wood that we're cooking the pig with, smoking it real slow, and, you know, by Saturday night when we eat that pig, the festivity, the, the, how much the men are enjoying the company of each other and their sons, it's just like this community grows out of the work we're doing. You know, so when we don't have those kind of things, and I'm not trying to wax romantically about an agrarian culture, but it, see, the thing is, humanity has always been naturally agrarian. It's not as if it's some philosophy chosen. I mean, it's, everyone has to eat three times a day. So we're, there's no such thing as a non-agrarian society. What we have is one that's detached from the necessity of the land and, and work and all that. So there's nothing, you know, kid shows up, totally nihilistic, him and his dad been arguing on the way here. There's nothing like pulling a bullet in a pig's forehead uh, to make shake him out of some kind of stupor. Oh, wow, things die so that I can live. And that's not yeah. being callous, that's just reality. You
8: know, it's But it's not, also see, the heart of the mass, Jason. What, you know, the bread we offer, fruit of the earth and work of human hands, that will become... Our spiritual food, the same with the wine, the fruit of the earth, the work of human hands. Even the word liturgy means work.
16: Yeah, that's everything we do. You know, they talk people like the, that Benedictine motto, ora et labora, and they think about it as if it's some sort of cho- no. This that like chosen idea. No, no, this is normal. This is human. There is nothing besides ora et labora. Everything is work. And I don't mean it in the drudgery of, of the world of total work, as Joseph Pieper called it, I mean the goodness of work that God, you know, Jesus said, my Father has been at work from the beginning, and I too must work. You know, St. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Work is our relationship to things, and when it's ordered and close to God, yeah, it becomes the work of human hands, the fruit of the earth, the work of human hands, and it's an offering to God. That's what it is. So when work becomes a place of disorder, division, Uh, you can see how deadly it can be to our souls, to the relationships. I mean, work is both how we provide for our families, and it's how a lot of families get torn apart, when their lives are solely detached from each other, um, that somehow this thing that's supposed to be bringing life is bringing death, which, oh, that's our old friend sin. That's how it works, you know, to take something good and holy, distort it so it can destroy us.
8: And uh, chasing the paycheck and forgetting why you want the paycheck to begin with, um, because... As the Church teaches, the basic unit of society is not the citizen or the worker. The basic unit is the family.
16: Yeah. But Matt, what does the family do? That's our big—you know, people hear that. What do we do? What is normal thing to do so that we're not just—what do we do, sit around the table and play cards and talk about the Catechism all day? It's like, No, actually, one of the best things we can do is work together. You know, we just had an issue of Sword and Spade magazine where it was, it was on this topic of work. And uh, this father wrote in and said, I, That magazine was really expensive because it cost me $600. I'm like, What? Well, I fired our lawn service and went and bought a bunch of lawn equipment because I was thinking, Why am I not doing this with my sons, with my children? Why am I not working with them? Uh, he, you know, he did the work and they're loving it. You know, it's amazing the, the joy we can have from just caring for our households. This is what, this is what we do.
8: Before we let you go this morning, Jason, you mentioned Sword and Spade, and I know you uh, do Fraternus and St. Joseph's Farm. Talk a little bit about some of the apostolates that uh, you are part of that our listeners might be interested in.
16: Yeah, we have, it's, it's a variety of apostolates. I mean, Fraternus is a mentoring organization. We uh, we manage thosecatholicmen.com, and we have a magazine called Sword and Spade. and The magazine is my favorite thing that we do. Basically, all of these apostolates are the, the very— the men in the trenches, the average man, you know, we know we need help, we need formation, we need growth. Um, and it's hard to find things that really speak particularly to the challenges we're in. So the magazine is is intellectually serious. It, it presents the teaching of the magisterium, direct excerpts, quotes, all these things. But it also has a lot of articles from men in the trenches trying to figure out. The big reason we do the magazine is that a lot of men are stranded on the islands of their screens, you know, and they want to get off the screen. They know they need to enter the intellectual life of the Church and grow their mind, uh, but they don't know where to start, because, you know, it's like, what book do I read? So the magazine is both a bridge away from the screen, and then we also send books out to those men that we select, and we give guides and videos, of, you know, to get them reading again, because there's really few things as fruitful for a father to do than quit slouching with your laptop on the couch at the end of the day and, you know, get forming your mind, which is the power of your soul, that you need to be a wise and loving father. So... Sword and Spade is just an easy way for those men, uh, and then these other apostolates like Fraternus, is if, if you want to really establish a more robust brotherhood that's mentoring the next generation, we've got the means to do that. No, it's not a magic program, but your brotherhood united uh, has huge power and potential in it for your son.
8: The com. if you want to find out about the magazine, or Fraternus, or St. Joseph's Farm, or any of the rest of it. Jason Craig, thanks for being with us, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Matt. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this.
0: The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, september thirtieth at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, Resuscitation of the Rosary, a Ferverino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as Homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org
4: support is from TBN. Weaving its way through the heart of the Holy Land is a well-worn path that once felt the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, and Jesus. Host David Friedman and Mike Pompeo take a sacred journey of hope along Route 60, the biblical highway. Experience the land of the Bible as you've never seen it in theaters September 18th and 19th, Route 60, the biblical highway. Information at route60.movie. That's route60.movie.
8: The kids got new supplies for back to school, so what do the parents get? Well, we suggest treating yourself to some good coffee, and the Mystic Monks of Wyoming have a number of blends to choose from.
1: And when you link to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, SONRISEMORNINGSHOW.com, we earn a commission on whatever you buy.
8: You can also treat yourself to a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug and a water bottle for your kid in our online store.
1: Check out our store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com.
12: The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Do I lie down in green pastures? In Alabama? Are you kidding? It's itchy. I'm not lying down in green pastures. It's a metaphor. It's beautiful. Why did God put Psalm 23 in the Bible? It was to warm our hearts and inspire us with love for God. Called to
3: communion with Dr. David Anders this afternoon 2 Eastern on EWTN radio.
1: You're listening to a special Labor Day edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. And we're joined now by Sunrise Morning Show legal and political analyst Ken Craycraft, a professor at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Cincinnati, a columnist for the Catholic Telegraph, and online with his legal practice at craycraftlaw.com here in studio with me. Good morning, Ken. Good to see you.
17: Good morning, Annie. It's good to be here, and it's good to see you for a change.
1: And happy Labor Day.
17: Happy Labor Day, yes. It's an important day in uh, the way that we think about Catholic social doctrine and other matters.
1: Yeah. So let's jump right into that whole idea about having a day to celebrate labor and how that fits in with Catholic moral teaching.
17: Well, you know, it's interesting when we think about Catholic social doctrine as a theological discipline. In the history of the church, it's a relatively young discipline. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, we date it to as late as 1891 with the magisterial encyclical Rerum Novarum by Pope Leo XIII. And we call Catholic social doctrine the development of doctrine in that encyclical tradition that's developed from Rerum Novarum. And that encyclical was written in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, where we saw a sea change in the nature of work and the relationship of the worker to work. And we saw technology outpacing our ability to understand how it was affecting the livelihoods and the souls of the worker. Workers who were no longer working at home or uh, close to home, but were doing assembly line work and things like that. And we also saw the possibility of the exploitation of workers and the difficulties of setting uh, work hour limits, the difficulties related to safety measures, the difficulties related to time off, unemployment, injuries, workplace stresses that were never a part of the worker's life until the industrial Industrial Revolution. So work is important in the history of Catholic moral theology in the sense that Rerum Novarum, the founding document of Catholic social doctrine, was almost entirely concerned with labor, the laborer, and how he's related to that work, and how he relates to what we later called the, the owner of production or the capitalist. So Catholic social doctrine begins with work and concern for the worker.
1: It's so interesting, and yet we see work in the very first pages of the Bible, don't we? So how does the Church understand the meaning and importance of work?
17: You know, that's exactly right. In the most general sense, work is a participation in the creative energy and capacity of God. And as you just noted, work is what we call prelapsarian. Adam and Eve, were instructed to work before the fall. They were instructed to cultivate the garden, to keep the garden. And so work is a natural part of the human condition. It's not part of the fall. It's a natural part of man as he was created in the image of God. The importance of that is that we understand work as co-creation, participation in the creative activity and the creative energy of God. And as it has developed, work is important for, among other things, of course, supporting a family, providing for the possibility of the development of social and economic systems, uh, and providing the kinds of things that, um, at at the end of the day, work toward man's ultimate purpose, and that is rest and leisure in God. You know, Annie, I like to tell my students that the purpose of work is not to work. It's, (laughs) it's It's sort of like that old joke about golf. You know what's the what's the purpose of golf to play less golf you know the fewer strokes the better <laughs> yeah, you are yeah. so you know your goal in golf is to play less golf well the goal of work and now this isn't to say that work doesn't have a dignity in itself and we can talk about that but at the end of the day the purpose of work is not to work it's to create the conditions by which we can do those things that call us to higher things prayer family Uh, other kinds of cultural institutions, the leisure that God calls us to contemplate Him, to enjoy family, and to enjoy cultural activities that are the fruit of our labor.
1: Which is why something like Labor Day is nice to have, I guess.
17: Exactly. So we think of Labor Day as a day off to uh, symbolize the rest that we earn by work and the rest that work is ordered to. And this is why work is closely associated with the dignity of the human person, because work serves that dignity, and sure. or, or at least it properly should serve that dignity.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that more. When we hear this term, the dignity of work, I mean, we have talked before about the, the quote unquote laptop class, right? Where we, we can take our work anywhere we want to go, and we sit at a desk with a computer, and, and we think of that as dignified as opposed to some other kind of jobs that many of us would consider undignified dignified so how do we think about that really in Catholic social thought
17: yeah and that's a really good question and, and we have discussed this before and in the wake of our discussion prior I've thought a little bit more about this and thinking about and, and basically there are there are a, a few different kinds of work and when we think about dignity we can slot them in different places you just mentioned the laptop class which is a certain uh, Dignity in that comes just in doing that work, and then there's a, a, another way of thinking about it. And I know I'll use my daughter uh, Margaret as an example, who's a, a filmmaker for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati mm-hmm. and photographer. She says sincerely that she loves her work, and what she means by that is that she likes doing what she does. So there's a certain dignity in that. But as you say, what about that work that doesn't have that kind of creative capacity?
1: Dirty jobs. Dirty so to jobs.
17: Speak. Exactly. And you know, I read. Books Booker T. Washington's up from slavery, and it gave me uh, a a real insight into trying to answer this question. Now, Booker T. Washington, of course, was the founder of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, Uh now called Tuskegee University. And in the early days of Tuskegee, he insisted upon the students working during the day and studying in the evening. And so the early years of the Tuskegee Institute, the students labored during the day in fields. They had agricultural, they had uh, uh, at the time, of course, there were still blacksmithing and uh, cotton uh, mills, and so they did work before they studied. And for Booker T. Washington, as he explained in and up from slavery, he taught the students the dignity in that work in two ways. First of all, it was the dignity of these s- former slaves and children of slaves doing work for themselves, Mm. doing work freely and doing work for themselves. And he wanted to talk about, as he called it, the dignity and the worthiness of the work in itself, the beauty of work, he called it, because it's for yourself. But he also said, and I think this is the real key, there's a dignity in the work that you provide for someone else, the service that you provide for someone else. He taught his students that when the Tuskegee Institute was founded, they Made products and goods and services that served the community around them. And he taught again these former slaves and children of slaves, you find your dignity in service to others. We should broaden our understanding of work as service. And so far as we understand, the dignity of work comes in providing something for others. And in that way, we are serving God, because when we serve others, we serve God. But that takes some work to work through that and think about that in a way that that really contributes to a, a fuller understanding of the dignity of work.
1: Well, and you think about that in terms of if we all looked at our own work as a means to serve God in other people, how that might adjust our thinking about whatever career we happen to be in, as opposed to just how it serves me. We've been talking to our legal and political analyst, Ken Craycraft. He's online at craycraftlaw.com. Ken, thank you so much. Thank Happy you, Labor Day.
17: Happy Labor Day, and it's great to see you today.
1: All right, that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. On behalf of Matt Swaim, Paul Lockman, and all our guests, I'm Anna Mitchell. Hope you have a very wonderful, safe, and blessed Labor Day
0: today. May God bless you and keep you, and grant you his peace.